Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome. Before I get started, I want to start with an acknowledgement of country. Um, I want to begin by acknowledging that we're meeting today on Aboriginal land. This is the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, uh, land that was never sold or ceded. Um, I want to acknowledge um, the Gadigal people and all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, Islander people as the traditional custodians of country and recognize that this is and always was uh, Aboriginal and always will be Aboriginal country. My name is Megan McKenzie and I'm a professor of gender and war here at the University of Sydney in the Department of Government and International Relations. I'm also a visiting fellow at the United States Studies Center. As you can might imagine from the title of the, um, the evening that some of the content is quite sensitive and some of the language that we'll be using is quite sensitive tonight. So just a heads up on that. And also to clarify that tonight when most of the focus, when we use the term uh, military sexual violence or assault, we're focused on intra-service sexual assault. So those are um, acts of assault or violence that happen within the service, including military contractors. So um, I am so excited in part because really when I envisioned this event, um, I thought of who would be uh, the, the top, the, literally the, the world's leading experts to help answer this question of why is military sexual assault still happening and how do we understand the conversations around military sexual assault. And the, the panelists that I have here tonight really are uh, exactly who I wanted to be here. And so I'm so thrilled and we've been having all kinds of amazing conversations leading up to this evening. Um, so, uh, the, the first speaker tonight is Ellen Herring. Um, uh, Ellen is the chief executive officer at Service Women's Action Network. She's also a senior fellow at Women in International Security, where she directs the Combat Integration Initiative Project. So her research, uh, and work focuses on women and gender in the military. She's a West Point graduate, a retired army colonel and an, an adjunct associate professor at Georgetown University, where she teaches courses on human security and women, peace and security. So when she talks, she's going to talk about the institutional obstacles for victims of military sexual violence and how it impacts those impact uh, individual victims and commanders. Next, we'll have Edda Gnaiden, who's been working. Um, she's a graduate student at the Department of Government and International Relations. Um, and her research interests are really on identity, post-colonial and discourse theory in international relations. She's also been working with me as a researcher for, I said six years, but it's actually been four and a half, but for a long time. And she is uh, the lead researcher of the military sexual violence project that I'm um, heading right now. She's going to be focusing really on what do we know about the problem of uh, military sexual violence? What data do we have and what data are we missing? Next, we have Shannon Sampert, who's a recently retired from her recently retired from her position as associate professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Winnipeg, and now runs her own consultancy. Um, she also took a leave of, uh, from her academic job to work as the first ever female op-ed editor 
for the Winnipeg Free Press. So if you don't know the, the Canadian media context, that's one of the oldest uh, independent newspapers in, in the country. And her research focuses on Canadian politics, media, and gender. Um, tonight, she's going to focus really on the particular ways that the media covers uh, sexual violence more broadly and how that might shape public knowledge on the issue. Next, we have Antonietta Rico. Uh, she's the former director of communications and policy at the Service Women's Action Network and an advocate for military women and military veterans. She served in the U.S. Army and has deployed to Iraq, where she was embedded with infantry units uh, during day-to-day -day missions and combat operations. She's a fellow at Women in International Security and has worked as deputy news editor at Army Times and written for time about military, uh, the military sexual assault epidemic and the Me Too movement. Tonight, she's going to talk more specifically about how the media covers uh, military sexual violence and what's happening in the U.S. at the moment. And then finally, we have Samantha Kronfetz. Um, Samantha is a director at Rapid uh, Context uh, and has 20 years of experience in design, implementation, and analysis, analysis and reporting of strategic and academic research. She began her career as an academic, specializing in sociology of health before starting her own consultancy business, which has taken on major research projects related to military culture um, and gender integration. So she's going to look at the question, is there something more unique about uh, military culture that leads to military sexual assault and misconduct more broadly? So I really had to work hard <laughs> to shorten those bios um, because in addition to be being very accomplished women, I also know uh, this group of women. And so it's just been such a pleasure to have them here. I'm so happy um, and I can't wait to hear all their um, comments. Before that, I'll just say a little bit about the project that sort of inspired uh, this pop-up lab. So I've been working... Uh, I've been researching gender in the military for um, about a decade now, and my last book focused on the integration of women into what were traditionally male-only infantry roles. So one aspect of the research I had always found particularly interesting was the ways that some of the arguments used to justify keeping women out of those roles uh, related to military sexual violence. The two of the main arguments that were used to keep women out of combat roles uh, fascinated me in particular. So first, there was the argument that women shouldn't be on the front lines because men have this natural protective instinct when it comes to women, and they would be distracted and worried about their female counterparts on the battlefield, making them less able to do their job. Another argument that came up frequently um, was that uh, the types of close confines, the intense work culture and environment, and the heightened adrenaline that comes uh, in combat uh, and combat missions may inevitably lead to sexual assault if women were working together closely with men. So I could never really reconcile those two um, arguments. Women shouldn't be there because men are natural protectors. Women shouldn't be there because men are natural predators. And quite frankly, I don't believe either argument, and I think they're both based on very damaging gender stereotypes. But I was really interested in this second argument that men are natural predators and shouldn't or couldn't be held accountable within the military context. Uh, and I really wanted to better understand how it is that we talk about military sexual assault, not just what the data tells us uh, and the rates tell us, although that is 
I think somewhat important and you'll learn more about that tonight, but also how it is that we make sense of military sexual assault and what myths and gender bias might shape those conversations. I'm really curious about how it is that the military remains the most trusted public institution despite high levels and persistent rates of sexual assault. Both uh, Australia, uh, the ADF remains the most public um, trusted institution in, in Australia and the U.S. military um, in the U.S. So one of the most um, compelling problems, I think, related to military sexual assault is that not much is changing. In the past two decades, the ADF has faced scandals, multiple internal reviews. Our former chief of army, David Morrison, was in a viral YouTube video telling sexist soldiers to get out. And there's been a number of declarations of zero tolerance from military and government and an entire new unit dedicated to military sexual assault victims in Australia. And yet, I don't think much has changed when it comes to military sexual violence, both in terms of the rates and certainly not in terms of the way the public makes sense of this violent violence. In fact, the ADF has made public um, statements of zero tolerance on average every four to five years for the past two decades, even as rates of sexual assault and misconduct seem to remain steady in some years increasing. So why is military sexual assault still happening despite multiple efforts to address it? Uh, over the past couple of years, my colleagues, Eda Gnaiden, uh, Omiyad Chowdhury, um, and I began analyzing nearly 30 years of Australian media coverage on this issue, trying to understand that. Our initial findings indicate a number of conflicting messages that come through. First, the problem is consistently framed as both systemic and exceptional. There are even headlines and quotes from military leaders that use those two terms in the same breath. So, for example, it's persistent, but it's not a problem. It's systemic, but we're handling it. So for me, I feel like if military sexual violence is persistent, it is a problem. And if it's systemic, it's a signal that the military is not handling it. What's also dominated the media coverage is really different versions of the boys will be boys adage. So similar to the com competing arguments used to keep women out of combat roles, our research revealed competing narratives used to describe military culture. And I think this can tell us a lot about how we make sense of sexual violence. Military culture is described as unique and cultivating indescribable bonds that are necessary for military success. However, the same culture of elite masculinity and loyalty that's seen as necessary for warfare is also attributed to high levels of sexual violence. So the public is consistently told that it fosters that this unique uh, military culture fosters uncontrollability, recklessness, and a sense of immunity in men that can lead to sexual assault. So the truth is, um, I can't fully make sense of why military sexual violence rates persist and how the boys will be boys um, term is still used uh, to justify this behavior. And that's why I called together uh, the people I think are the best uh, to help me answer this question. 
And one of the motivations in putting together this group of women was I wanted to explore the, the problem of military sexual violence as a global problem and to place the ADF within an international context. So tonight we're particularly focused on Canada, the US and Australia. Uh, tonight, we're also not focused on what the ADF or other military institutions have to say about themselves. Um, that's valuable, but that's not what we're doing tonight. But we are focusing on two elements. First, what are the public conversations around uh, military sexual violence? And in particular, how the media has covered this issue in a Me Too era. Second, we're focused on what we know about military culture and how we can think critically about the relationship between military culture and sexual violence. So without further delay, I will um, bring it over to our first speaker, um, Ellen Herring. Thank you. I'm Ellen Herring, the CEO of the Service Women's Action Network, which is headquartered in Washington, DC. I'm a retired army colonel and I served in the army for over 30 years. Tonight, my remarks are focused on institutional obstacles to solving the problem of military sexual assault. Everyone tends to think that the US has one of the highest rates of military sexual assault in the world, but I would argue that we ha all have a nearly identical problem and that the US is seen to be the worst because we have addressed it more directly and publicly than any other country. And we have only done so because we have a few very committed Congresswomen and senators who care deeply about solving this problem. It is to their credit and that many of the institutional reforms have been forced on the military in the past decade. For example, a, a victim of military sexual assault now has two reporting options. She or he can do a restricted or an unrestricted report. A restricted report allows her to keep her assault private, but receive medical care. She also has the option to file an unrestricted report and name her perpetrator for the purpose of prosecution. Any unrestricted report automatically generates a criminal investigation by trained investigators, and senior leaders can no longer overturn convictions. This was not the case in past years. In past years, commanders could do internal investigations, and senior commanders could and did overturn convictions in cases of sexual assault. We have also created special victim advocates and special victim counsels who provide emotional and legal counsel to victims. Today, every soldier, sailor, airman, and Marine receives in the United States receives training on what is what constitutes sexual harassment assault, and they also receive bystander intervention training. It's mandatory training across the force, it, it, and every single year you participate in this training. The military is also required to document and report all sexual assaults and the disposition of every case and to do biannual anonymous prevalence surveys to measure the incident rate. All of these changes have been forced on the military by our politicians. The military has resisted nearly every change. Despite all the focus and the magnitude of changes, we still have a problem in our military. In the 2016 prevalence survey, 14,900 service members reported being sexually assaulted. In the 2018 report released just this past May, 20,500 service members reported being victims of sexual assault. This is nearly a 40% increase in two years. The real institutional failure is that the military has steadfastly refused to look deeply at its own culture. 
a culture that is bound up in, a, in our highly masculine and sexist beliefs where victims, predominantly women, simply aren't believed and perpetrators, 96% of whom are men, are protected. Even when there is clear evidence that an assault has occurred, victims are still being blamed and retaliation against victims is rampant. 64% of victims from the 2018 prevalence survey reported experienced retaliation when they reported. The only area of culture that the military has directly addressed is the practice of hazing and bullying in units, which is often linked to men's sexual assaults. And as a result, the 2018 prevalence report does show a decline in the number of men who reported being sexually assaulted. But for women, the problem is getting worse despite all of these institutional changes. I'll give you a personal example. Two years ago, a young private reported to me that she woke up in her barracks room naked with blood on her sheets. She said she generally doesn't drink, but the night before she had a drink with some guys in a sister unit, and she doesn't remember anything after that first drink. The next morning, several guys from her own unit told her that, she, that they had chased away some other guys from her barracks room the night before. She didn't initially report the incident because she said that she didn't know what to report. She had no idea what had happened to her. Eventually, she became so upset over the incident that she went to mental health for help and ended up on the psychiatric ward at the military hospital at Fort Hood. At first, she made a restricted report to get the care that she needed, but eventually she went after the, her perpetrators with an unrestricted report. At the local level in her unit, her first sergeant commander publicly said that she was a troublemaker and a liar. She was assigned menial duties while an investigation ensued. Although the investigation did pinpoint several soldiers, they were eventually exonerated due to a lack of evidence. She requested and eventually received an early discharge from the Army. Today, she can file for veteran benefits due to the post-traumatic stress that she experiences from this assault, but even those veteran benefits for victims are an institutional change. They weren't available in past years. What does this case tell us about institutional failure? I would say that it says a lot about personal responsibility and culture and the limits of the types of institutional changes that have been made in the U.S., the young men from her unit who chased away other men failed in their duty to help a fellow soldier. They failed to protect her and they didn't stand up for her when she began to fall, fall apart. All of the institutional changes from training on what constitutes sexual assault to how to intervene and to how to report when you're a victim have been developed and implemented, but they still didn't stop her from being assaulted. I argue that the institutional change that has never been addressed and is at the root of this and other military problems, needs to begin with a re-examination of how soldiers are trained and indoctrinated, starting at basic training. Our existing model, in fact, all military models, rely on this notion that to build good soldiers, we must first break them down and then rebuild them in some heroic, soldierly, and masculine image. We bring young men and women in and we break them down through a process of hazing and harassment and hardship coupled with military indoctrination or systemic, systematic brainwashing, and we build them up to be patriotic followers that supposedly serve in tight, supportive, familial groups. They're taught to be strong, stoic, self-sacrificing, and loyal. This is reinforced by denigrating anything associated with the feminine or non-heteronormative. One of my son's closest friends recently told me that when he was in Marine Corps boot camp, the only thing he was called was a girl, a bitch, or a faggot. The message is clear. You don't want to be anything associated 
with the feminine or homosexual. Then we send these young men and women out to units where they may or may not find anything resembling the supportive band of brothers and sisters romanticized in military folklore. Instead, many of them, especially women, are excluded, isolated, and left to sink or swim on their own. As a fractional minority group, young women are especially vulnerable and they make up the bulk of the victims. To tackle the problem of military sexual assault, we must begin by re-examining the iconic boot camp experience and how we train and indoctrinate young men and women into the army. Thank you. Hi, all. I'm, I'm Etta Gnaiden, um, and I'm a researcher at the University of Sydney. Um, and my research is primarily focused on the Australian Defence Force, or ADF, and that's what I'll be talking about tonight. Um, so in contrast to the US, which um, has really worked on fostering good data collection and publication practices, research is working on military sexual violence in the Australian context, like myself, are often stopped in our tracks when it comes to defining the size and scope of the problem here. Although many positive changes were introduced into the forces between 2012 and 2016, uh, these reforms first can't take us back in time and correct the historically poor collection of data, and second, have not fixed all the problems with data collection that we're still experiencing. Uh, for context, the reforms that I'm speaking about were introduced in the wake of the Skype sex scandal and the Jedi Council scandals of 2012 and 2013. These scandals freshly demonstrated to the public that military sexual violence uh, is a serious problem in the forces, and they triggered six concurrent reviews into the ADF, two by then Sex Discrimination Commissioner Elizabeth Broderick, if you'll all recall. Uh, and they uncovered widespread and historical sexual abuse. Um, and these reviews, reviews concluded in 2016 with the government opting not to pursue a royal commission, a dedicated royal commission into the ADF. So what's still difficult to get a handle on is just how widespread this abuse actually is. Has it been trending up and down? Uh, the changes that were made ineffective? We can't diagnose or solve a problem that we don't fully understand. And unfortunately, the approach traditionally taken by the forces, who've only conducted inquiries in a responsive or reactive fashion, has created significant holes in the data. So tonight I'm going to try to discuss the scope of the problem, but namely show that we struggle to know exactly what the scope of the problem is. Um, and I also have to make a point about the vital importance of consistently, regularly, and transparently collected and published data. So as researchers and members of the public, there are two main methods of data collection that we can turn to to understand the rates of sexual assault and misconduct. The first of these is surveys. Um, in order to yield useful data, surveys have to be administered A, regularly, B, to the same segment of the services and to a similar sample size, and C, using standardized definitions and questions. Unfortunately, <laughs> this has not necessarily always been the case. Um, so if you'll just bear with me, I just want to walk you quickly through the quagmire of survey data that we have in the Australian context, so that I can show you how almost every one of the surveys that we have available has tripped up um, on at minimum one of these three criteria. Uh, so the first ever survey into sexual misconduct in the ADF was conducted in 1987 by Major Catherine Quinn. Her study was conducted with 1,400 only females, so no men were surveyed, service people. 
um, and it asked questions about 12 different types of sexual act. It found that 53% of women had been sexually harassed and 11% sexually coerced. It was administered again as the sexual experiences questionnaire eight years later to 3,100 men and women, uh, and it asked about 25 different types of act. So these surveys aren't directly comparable, uh, but they are similar enough. They showed that neither sexual harassment nor coercion had fallen. In fact, harassment had risen for women. Then in 1998, the Unacceptable Behaviour Survey, or UBS, was introduced, again, in only in response to a sex scandal. Uh, this survey was conducted annually between 2000 and 2009, but the majority of the results are not available to the public. So the UBS was thrown out, actually, briefly in 2010 on the fairly spurious grounds that our surveys give inconclusive and possibly inflated results. After a year, however, the UBS was administered again, uh, only in response to the Skype sex scandal. And even while reinstated, the UBS was actually only administered to cadets rather than to all service people. So it can't be compared to the preceding data. Subsequently, the Australian Human Rights Commission uh, conducted a survey with men and women across the services in 2012, but its questions differed from these other surveys. And so it's not comparable either. Uh, but the AHRC survey did find that 25.8% of women and 10.5% of men had experienced harassment. So then, in 2013, the Broderick reforms were implemented and the UBS was formally recommenced and administered defence-wide. As of 2016, the UBS was still being administered, but we as the public struggled to access the results. So what we've ended up with is a lot of surveys and a lot of potential data but none which has been collected with a long-term vision and sense of thoughtfulness. Um, and this creates serious validity problems for researchers. So we turn to the second way of getting uh, information about sexual misconduct in the ADF, which is to look at incident reports uh, and filed complaints. So the data we have, uh, that I have shown on this lovely graph here, uh, looking at this chart on its face, it probably looks quite alarming and <laughs> quite seriously alarming, I think, uh, as if the incidence of sexual assault and harassment has skyrocketed. However, this could equally be a story of poor data collection. If we look at the 80s, perhaps it's a little blurry, but the leftmost columns there, if we look at the 80s, the rate appears this low only because incident reports weren't even kept until 1989. When asked to report its numbers to a Senate inquiry in 1994, following a rape scandal on the HMAS Swan, the ADF had to manually comb through its separate police, incident personnel, and unit reports. And it's reasonable to surmise that many were lost or missed. Um, although general aggregated misconduct reports were kept from 2008 onwards, the numbers of specifically sexual misconduct were not published again until 2012. Uh, by the AHRC. And the AHRC was able to uncover significant data discrepancies, as you can see in the uh, top right there. Uh, so as you can see, the values... Uh, oh, that one's not blurry. Uh, so as you can see, the values, behavior, and resolution branch reports a very different um, figure compared to that given by the ADF investigative service, or ADFIS. Uh, this is because this data is not being reported to a single collection point, again, making the numbers seem lower than they were. Um, 
This is problematic, considering that a service person wishing to complain about sexual misconduct in the Australian context could go either to the uh, ADF investigative service, the Inspector General of the ADF, to the Joint Military Police Unit, or to the AHRC to make the report. And then, as of 2019, one also has the option of going to the Defence Ombudsman, as well as the STEMFRO, uh, the Sexual Misconduct Prevention and Response Office which is an agency that was set up in 2013 in order to function as a single point of data collection. So now, fortunately, all of these services do report to SEMPRO, and we can see that data collection has improved, uh, which might actually be what explains this uptick in the graph. But the final thing that adds further fuzz to this data is the fact that these are the incidents which people do come forward and make a report about. Many people don't. Uh, so the Defence Abuse Response Task Force found in 2016 that the percentage of people who report was only about 15%. And reporting rates themselves change over time. So the seeming increase in incidents above may reflect the improved climate and comfort that victims experience in reporting. Or maybe it doesn't. <laughs> but we don't know. But uh, in addition, we don't actually know what reporting rates were like in the past. So maybe real rates of military sexual violence have gone up. Maybe they haven't. In some, this data is simply too opaque to make valid conclusions about. And in a data environment like this one, it's perhaps no surprise that we as researchers and the public would turn to other information sources and rely upon other information sources, such as the public media, to make up our minds. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you for having me here, and thank you, Megan, for allowing me to come all the way to beautiful Sydney. I'm Shannon Sampert, a soon-to-be retired professor from the University of Winnipeg. I am also a journalist. I am a bi-monthly uh, columnist for the Winnipeg Free Press, and I've been interested in the issue of sexual violence and the media for more than 40 years now. In 1983, I published, or I did a documentary on uh, sexual violence of young children called The Silent Crime when I was working for a uh, television network in uh, Prince George. In 2006, my PhD thesis was all about the articulation of sexual assault crimes in Canadian newspapers across Canada and a one-year period. And I plan to revisit that one-year period in all those newspapers after, uh, in, in the Me Too era and do a comparative analysis to see if there's been any change. So I'm very interested in how media articulate the social construction of uh, sexual assault. And here's what I know so far about this uh, idea of sexual assault in, in media. For one thing, um, there, the police act as the actual gatekeeper on sexual assault crimes. So what we read in the newspaper isn't really the reality of what sexual assault crimes are all about. What we read in the newspaper is really the bushy-haired stranger who jumps out of the bush to attack women, or we hear about the kind of the predator who uh, rapes a number of women uh, at one time, or we hear about the kind of unusual predator, usually the female who is attacking the male uh, victim, usually a teacher. Um, that isn't the reality of what sexual assault is actually about. We know that sexual assault is usually the, the boyfriend, the uncle, the stepfather. 
and because of that, it skews our actual understanding of what sexual violence is about in Canada or in, in, in international cases as well in, in Australia and, uh, and the United States. Uh, as a result of that, because the police and because the state uh, control that information, the way the media articulate uh, the, uh, the uh, sexual assault cases comes from two different ways. They do it in, uh, in cases about the trying to catch the bushy-haired stranger, or they do it when they're covering court cases. And the court cases are usually these kind of unusual cases, again, these uh, number of, uh, a number of victims or these unusual court cases where they have a famous person who has been convicted. And the court coverage is also not very nuanced at all. It's told in this kind of legal language where it is, you know, the black and white guilty or not guilty uh, without any understanding that if a person is found not guilty, it does not mean that he is innocent. Indeed, feminists have told over and over again about the high threshold that has to be uh, uh, maintained in order to get a guilty conviction on sexual assault crimes. And that really does lead to the idea that women go around willy-nilly accusing men of sexual assault, and these good men are then uh, being accused, and, uh, and women lie about sexual assault all the time, which we know is actually not the case. Um, what this means, though, is that these um, men, uh, more often than not, are found not guilty because of the high threshold, and women uh, get the message that they won't be believed when they do actually come forward about sexual violence. And th that means that um, also every time there is a sexual assault, uh, not guilty verdict, we know that women uh, get the message and we know that the um, number of uh, reporting actually goes down. The reliance on the state for information also means that when police issue uh, or provide news information uh, or a news release, they actually sometimes accidentally imply that the woman could have done something different in order to prevent her, her from becoming uh, sexually assaulted. And this means that victim blaming does occur. The news release will often be sent out to the media who will just rewrite it and send it out on the wire or, or on the online version of the newspaper, and it will be tweeted out without question. And what will happen is they will say things like, the media, our women are being warned not to walk out uh, alone at three o'clock at night near alleys because a, a woman has been uh, raped as a result of doing such behavior. Well, I've never ever heard of someone being told not to leave their car unlit or near an unlit alley at three o'clock in the morning because the car will be taken away as a result of that. But they tell women that all the time. And that's one of the ways that the state tells women or tries to control women's behavior. Feminists have done a very good job of taking that myth and turning it around on their head. And, I'm, and I really like the fact that we have told police over and over again to stop doing that. And police, thankfully, have said, yes, we recognize that is a very dumb thing to do. But old habits do die hard. And every time they do send out one of those news releases, as women and as feminists, we do need to challenge them on that. Stop the victim blaming. There is good news, and I'm happy to report in Canada, the media have done a very good job on a number of occasions. The media in 1998 broke a story that has actually led to the Canadian Armed Forces being held responsible for sexual violence. 
two national newspaper, two national magazines, pardon me, published a series of four cover stories in 1998 that led to investigations of sexual violence in the military. And in 2014, they followed up with another report. And it was through those investigations that Operation Honor was began for the Canadian forces. And the Canadian newspapers, uh, the Globe and Mail in 2017, did a months-long investigation into the actions of Canadian forces, uh, Canadian police forces throughout the country about their unfounded rapes that resulted in one in five police uh, reported rapes that did not get pursued. And because of that internal, uh, that because of those front page stories, they actually changed the way the police were doing their job. Those investigative reports, though, require a lot of work by the reporters. And as you know, in Australia and in the United States and in Canada, with falling circulation rates and with falling staff, staff in, the, in the newsroom, it is extraordinarily difficult to do that kind of work. And so as a result, every time the media do this kind of good work, you also sort of hold your breath and go, another time a newspaper falls, the ability to do that work also goes away. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Antonieta Rico. I served in the U.S. Army for almost seven years, and I've deployed to Iraq to combat zones. Um, as the former director of communications and policy at the Service Women's Action Network, or SWAN, the leading national organization in the United States advocating for women in the military, and as a former reporter for Army Times and a former soldier myself, the topic of military sexual assault and how it is covered in the media is a large part of my career focus. In late 2017, as the Me Too movement was gaining momentum in the United States and around the world, I was contacted at SWAN by a reporter from Time magazine. The reporter wanted to know if we could put them in touch with military women who had spoken out about sexual assault in the services. That December in 2017, Time magazine named the Silence Breakers, the prominent women and men who had come forward and shared their stories of sexual assault kicking off the Me Too movement as their time person of the year. When the story was released, we at SWAN were very disappointed to see the military's women's um, stories had been excluded. And yes, I acknowledge that the women's stories in many other fields, as well as in other marginalized communi communities, were excluded also. But because we, as a nation, ask military women and men to put their lives on the line, fighting wars on behalf of our country. Sorry. Have, fighting the wars on behalf of our country, we have a special um, duty and obligation to ensure that the stories of military women um, are heard and that the sexual assault epidemic in the military is um, addressed. That omission of military women from the silent breakers issue is indicative of media coverage of military sexual assault which is to largely ignore the epidemic. The national major media outlets coverage of military sexual assault is driven by the Pentagon itself. Annually, the military releases a report on sexual assault rates, and you see a flurry of articles in the media on how the numbers of sexual assault reports have risen yet again. And then the coverage drops off until the next report is released the next year by the Pentagon. This type of reporting that's based on the annual release of the report is focused on statistics. It often exclusively quotes Pentagon official sources and lacks any context 
this type of reporting that is driven by statistics erases victims from the equation. The stories of victims are overlooked and insights into the lifelong impact of sexual assault on the victims is left out. This type of reporting makes victims invisible. Media outlets that specifically cover the military tend to cover the issue a bit more, but often these outlets are focused on reaching the military population, so they play right into problematic rape culture tropes that exist in the military. It is often alluded that service women have an agenda for coming forward and reporting. Uh, they're scorned lovers, uh, they want to ruin a career, or they're claiming assault because they regretted having sex. Conversely, much is made of the potential impact on the perpetrator's career. If you look at the headlines over the last week uh, regarding the sexual assault allegation against General John Hyten in the U.S., the president's nominee for the second highest military position, um, the vice chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, you will see that the main focus of the stories have been the, on the impact on his nomination and not that he allegedly committed a sexual assault. Also, many headlines have minimized accusations to sexual misconduct, where in fact the service woman alleges that he sexually assaulted her. Often in the stories of a military sexual assault perpetrators, their medals, awards, and deployments are listed. I've seen reports of someone charged of sexual assault where the reporter goes out of their way to state that this person had good conduct medal. Yes, the media wants you to know that a sexual predator um, had a good conduct medal. What does this type of reporting do where the perpetrator's career deployments, medals become such a big part of reporting on sexual violence in the military? In essence, it serves to paint the picture of the perpetrator as a hero and not as a violent criminal. Additionally, when the impact of, on the military career of the alleged perpetrator is made the focus of a story on sexual assault, it sends the message that sexual assault is a minor issue compared to a man's military career. But oddly enough, stories often fail to mention the impact that being sexually assaulted has on the victim's own military career. Another trend in reporting sexual violence in the military is the way language is used to minimize the harm and severity of the sexual assault. Often it's not treated as a crime, but as sex gone wrong, literally. One headline I, I, um, I will read and I quote, Army lawyers' rape charge stems from kinky sexual relationship allegedly gone wrong. That's a real headline. Another headline on a different story involving one of the first infantry women on a combat combat arms unit reads, horny bastard first sergeant had affair with female infantry private, Army says. This story was at a minimum a case of sexual harassment committed by the highest ranking enlisted soldier within that soldier's unit on the low, one of the lowest ranking soldiers, but it's just merely painted as an affair. No context is given of the power dynamics of rank involved which could reasonably affect or negate consent in that case. And also the first line in the story was, critics said it was bound to happen, and sure enough, it did. Let's also go back a bit to those two headlines I read, where they mentioned kinky sex and the horny bastard soldier. This headline sensationalized the sexual violence and exploit victims just to draw readers in. One, there has been one exception that I've noticed lately, 
It has been the coverage of Senator Martha McSally's revelation that she was raped while in the military. Media coverage of her has been nuanced, painting a complete picture of her as a person, a servicewoman, and now a senator. Her allegations have been treated seriously, and the impact the assault had on her military career has been part of the stories. So if the media can cover the rape of a senator with nuance, dignity, and respect, then they are most certainly able to treat all victims, regardless of rank or status, um, with the same respect. Reporters have an obligation to report a military sexual assault fairly and responsibly because they shape the way the public will view sexual violence. They influence whether the public pays attention to the issue, how the public views victims, and if the public will hold perpetrators accountable. We've seen that only too well in the Me Too reckoning. The media and reporters have a responsibility to be aware of the stereotypes and rape culture tropes that exist around sexual violence to ensure that they're not repeating those very same tropes in their reporting, thereby contributing to the negative beliefs and attitudes about sexual violence that prevent victims from seeking help and getting justice and shield predators from the consequences of their crimes. Thank you. So my name is Samantha Cromfitz. Um, I'm the director of a um, small research firm called uh, Rapid Context. Um, my, my background is, is as a sociologist, uh, increasingly as a military sociologist. I started out my career, I suppose, doing work with the military in about 2008, 2009, where I undertook a three-year study funded by the Department of Veterans Affairs that was really aimed at um, assessing DVA's policy framework for how well it accommodated women's health needs. So during that project, um, so from about 2009 to 2011, um, I interviewed women who had deployed uh, from the Vietnam era right through to Afghanistan. So I, I had with me a whole range, I had heard a whole lot of experiences um, from a range of uh, different women on, uh, you know, across a number of um, generations. And it was just as I was wrapping up that project that the, you know, infamous Skype scandal happened in defence and um, the, the Broderick review commenced. And I really watched with interest, um, you know, what, what those findings were and, and really tried to see what the, the parallels were with some of the stories that I'd collected um, uh, over those uh, sort of previous three years. And the sense I got, certainly from talking to women who'd, um, you know, been in defence over such a, a, you know, over decades really, was that there had been a sense of change that, um, you know, and, and already I suppose where I'd landed at the end of that project was that there was, there was quite a lot of change happening in defence. And I think when I, when I saw the findings from the Broderick Review, one of the things that struck me was just how it, it had rendered invisible a lot of the work that women had been doing in defence to create change, um, that, you know, women had been doing frontline combat roles, that there was a whole lot of things that, that sort of, um, I suppose the way it was represented in the media was that this had all just sort of um, occurred for the first time in um, sort of 2011. Uh, from that point, I, I've really, I suppose, since then done some work uh, with defence, a lot of work, um, really um, looking at a range of things, evaluating culture change, um, doing specific projects in the department. Um, and 
And again, my sense is that there is change. And, you know, even in the discussions we've had today, and, and I won't, um, you know, dispute the, the data that was put up, I, I suppose what I, I questioned was, well, how do I know that there's been change then? Um, I'm a qualitative researcher, my bias is towards qualitative research. So I just want to talk a little bit about that and about some of the qualitative data points that exist that are not as easily accessible as the um, unacceptable behaviour and, and SEMPRO reporting. And also talk a little bit about how I think Defence's approach to culture reform has actually matured over the last 10 years, which I think is really important as well. Um, so I think with, with some of that data there, I don't think there's a conspiracy theory behind it where, um, you know, there's that, that it, I mean, we, we know that um, sexual assault and sexual harassment reporting in general, no matter what the um, institution or, or um, context is underreported, we know that, um, and I'm sure that it's higher than what is reported. Um, but we also know through, um, through a number of different um, uh, studies that there is a much greater um, trust in the system and processes, I suppose, for victims of sexual assault and sexual harassment in defence. So defence has really focused on, um, or the ADF have really focused on improving their, uh, their processes processes and structures around complaints management and support for victims. Um, we also do a lot of work in other organisations, um, in the university sector, with sporting clubs, um, other highly regarded Australian institutions. And, and so I, I do know that Defence has, um, you know, is really has, is quite progressive actually in, in the work that it's done. The Human Rights Commission um, has been doing uh, over the last four or five years sort of cultural audits of defence, so following up from the work, uh, the original Liz Broderick um, work. They've uh, held over, I think, 2,000 conversations with defence members and their findings have been fairly consistent over the last four years and that's um, that, uh, you know, there are definitely areas that still require a lot um, a lot more uh, improvement, but also that um, overwhelmingly uh, the people that they've spoken to have said that they feel really confident in using those systems and in reporting. Um, Defence has, uh, you know, similar to the US, it's done a lot of training and education, and I know in the US that hasn't necessarily, um, you know, the, the stats don't reflect that that has been effective. Uh, I think one of the most profound things that the ADF have done is uh, a program of restorative engagement with victims. Um, that led uh, from the, uh, I think, the um, Defence Abuse Response Task Force um, a few years ago. And what that process is, is getting senior leaders um, from sort of group captain, brigadier level uh, to meet with um, both current and ex-serving members um, of defence who are victims. Uh, and in that process, they listen to those stories and they also, as a representative of defence, apologise to those victims. I think that has really had a profound effect on the defence leadership, their engagement with the issue, their understanding and empathy um, of the issue, uh, and has had a flow-on effect 
um, to the, the teams that they lead. Um, some of the other work that we've done over the last couple of years is really trying to inform the, the focus of culture reform for um, defence going forward. So at the time of the Skype scandal, the CDF, um, General Hurley, had three priorities for culture reform. They were uh, to um, uh, increase women's participation, uh, decrease, um, I think, alcohol uh, use and um, decrease um, sexual misconduct. Not the exact wording, but those were about, about the uh, roundabout, right. Um, the work that we did to try to, inf to inform um, what those priorities should be from 2017 to, you know, so for the next five years, uh, involved um, conversations, again, with about 2,000 people across um, the defence enterprise to really understand what it should be focusing on. And those uh, more overt um, uh, behaviours didn't um, really, uh, didn't emerge as where of didn't emerge as the issues um, in the same way that they had in 2011. So the kinds of things that defence, and this is where I suppose I'm, I'm talking about the, the way that their approach to culture reform has matured, um, they wanted to look at um, workforce flexibility, they wanted to look at inclusion, they wanted a greater focus on leadership accountability and what that meant, they wanted to look at work health and safety and mental health. Um, and they also wanted to look at ethics and workplace behaviours. So sexual misconduct is absolutely a component of those, but I think the shift has been to not just looking at, um, I think, how uh, some issues around the treatment of women manifest, but what are some of the enablers of those more systemically across the organisation? And I think the defence the defense at the moment has, um, you know, ha there, there is definitely evidence that they they engage in critical reflection um, and that they want, uh, they absolutely want to see change occur. Uh, thank you everyone for those wonderful remarks and for really giving kind of a broad context and range of perspectives on this issue, both in terms of culture, um, data, uh, and other forms of evidence um, around this issue. So one of the, um, one of the questions that I guess I have um, I've had, and 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 often in media reporting, um, and even in defense response to this issue, we hear that um, this is an issue of generation that requires a generational change, and we hear this in other issues as well with women in the workforce. Um, so we we just came across a news article in, in our analysis this week talking about sort of the the old dead wood that needs to move on, and then we will have this progressive institution. So I have a question, I guess, to our more experienced members of the panel, um, Shannon and Ellen, um, if you wanted to give us a sense of whether there has been any change over a generation, both in terms of the military institution or in terms of how we talk about or the academic work around, um, around sexual assault and military sexual assault. So maybe Ellen, if you want to talk about, I mean, Ellen, it was actually one of the part of one of the, in one of the first classes at West Point. So back when they would call them the eighties ladies, uh, when there was huge resistance. So I would just guess that you've seen some, some changes. Sure. Um, yes. Yeah, so I'm, <laughs> I actually joined the army in 1979 
Um, so that was my very first and earliest experience. But I graduated from West Point in 1984 in the fifth class of women to graduate from one of the military service academies. And the, okay, the, the conversation has changed, but unfortunately, not nearly as much as I would have anticipated. My own daughter served, has finished uh, five years serving recently, and I was shocked to learn and see how little has actually changed in all the intervening years. Um, and it was very discouraging, and it's part of what has driven me to do the work that I'm doing today, is to help younger women um, make the kinds of change, younger women and men, because this only benefits men as well, um, that hasn't actually occurred in the last 35 years since I first joined the Army. So I'm discouraged. I do think that the, these discussions are happening now, and they never happened when I came in in the early 80s. So that is different. There has been changes in the way newsroom, in the newsroom culture, in the discussion about sexual violence, for sure. A lot of stuff that happened in the way newsrooms reported things in the 1970s and the 1980s and the 1990s, it's just not on in 2017. The new the newsrooms are now more. There are more women, and there are more women in in senior roles, and 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 there are more women pushing the conversation. But I, I have a really interesting anecdotal story about that. I got a phone call from uh, the senior editor when I was, you know, when I was a when I was a professor, saying that the the free press had had maintained a policy of not releasing a man's name, even though the police had released it, if he had been charged with sexual assault. Because the men in the newsroom were so concerned that it would ruin his reputation. And the police had released it. It was like, you know, it was public knowledge. But they were so concerned about it. And the female editor said, I want to change. All the women want this change. And I said, you have to. And the reason is, is that if you release his name, the likelihood is that there will have more women coming forward saying, he raped me too, and you have to do it. And she implemented that change. That didn't happen in 1996. That happened in 2016. That's how outdated that newsroom was on that particular policy. And it was only because they had a female editor who was stomping her feet to the city editor going, we're changing that policy. So it, you know, it, it, sometimes it's just you need enough women in a newsroom to go, enough is enough. We're changing it. And it's it's reassuring when you have that critical mass of women, right? Yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, I mean, we framed this discussion around um, military sexual violence in the Me Too moment. But I wonder, um, um, Samantha, if you think, A, that's the best way to frame this problem. And, and even if, I mean, um, and I've known Tony for a long time, so it's really hard for me to say anything with Tony. Tony, whether you... You've written about um, um, the military and the Me Too moment, like whether that is a useful way to sort of, you know, update the conversation. Um, well, I, I don't think it is helpful, actually. Um, I think that I think about what I mean, I, I you know, the, the title of this and, and I did think, well, what is that? What does that mean? What does it mean to does the, has the military or is it time for the military to have its Me Too movement? And if it means the toppling of high-profile men or um, privileging of kind of individual stories, then, um, you know, I, I don't think, you know, that has happened in defence. I'm not sure it needs to happen um, right now. Um, it's, 
yeah. Uh, the Me Too movement, I think, is something uh, like de- defence has had absolute um, catalysts for change over the last, well, not just decade, like, you know, throughout its history. Um, and it's, you know, in various ways responded to those. There's been a very, uh, you know, a commitment to that over the last decade. Um, sounds like I'm, I'm advocating on behalf of defence. I'm certainly on the public record for pointing out when there are uh, problems in the ADF. Um, but I think that, that there is credit due. So I, I'm not sure the Me Too movement, I think it's perhaps a bit narrow to apply. Okay. And Tony, you've actually answered this question. Why hasn't the military had its Me Too moment? Do you think that's a good frame? And, and how, why, how would you answer that question? First, like using the Me Too moment as a frame. I think that women in the military, I mean, the sexual assault epidemic in the military has existed for a long, long time. Um, I've, I've gone through research on the Army Women's uh, Museum and I've read reports of women in World War II being sexually assaulted. So if there is something like the Me Too moment that brings public attention to the issue, then I think it's helpful for women in the military to be part of that conversation because at least somebody's paying attention because we've been speaking out about it for a long time Absolutely. and nobody has been paying attention. So yeah, we'll seize on that me too moment and say, what about us? Um, you know, me too. Mm-hmm. Um, so far as why hasn't the military had its me too moment in so far as uh, the military being held accountable and toppling of leaders uh, because of the sexual assault epidemic. I, um, I think part of it, especially in the U.S., is this deference that we have for the military. We hold them in high esteem, and rightly so, because we've been at war for almost two decades now. And we hold them in high deference, so the public doesn't want to be seen as if they're trashing the troops. So if you start talking about military sexual assault, um, it has kind of like a negative stigma that you're trashing um, the military. Another part of it, you know, with that is... uh, Ignorance. Um, we talk about often in the U.S. context the civilian-military divide. So on one hand, we hold troops in high esteem, and on another hand, we know absolute the public knows absolutely nothing about the military, how it works, the process. Um, most the majority of the public is not really affected by the wars because it's like a small military population fighting it. So they're ignorant of how the military works. And they don't want to say like, oh, we should be holding military commanders accountable. Instead, they cede that responsibility and say, oh, you know, the military knows what it's doing. And it's because they don't know enough about the military process. And finally, I think another part of it is just uh, women's inability to speak out against sexual assault within the military. Like within our community, we talk about it. But if you speak publicly to the media about your story, it could very negatively affect your career. I mean, even reporting it internally usually means that you'll be kicked out, as Ellen gave that example. So a lot of the time, uh, women's voices are silenced. We can't speak publicly. And I think those three factors have played into the public refusing to hold the military accountable for the sexual assault epidemic. And Etta, you've been um, working with me for a long time, (laughs) and we've read through 30 years of media coverage of military sexual assault in Australia. (laughs) What did you find, uh, what what surprised you, or what do you think was one of the most striking um, 
things that we've or you found in the research? Um, I think, and I think this is something that we've all in our own ways sort of started to circle around when we're talking about this issue. Um, the thing that has maybe not surprised but alarmed me the most is that we're trying to conduct a longitudinal study, but time and time again we're seeing an inability not just in the media, but also in this sort of data environment to create a, uh, to generate a historically coherent account of what is going on. So in some instances, there are blockades with this jumping around with survey questions and how things are defined. And in fact, just as of 2018, the 2018 annual report of the ADF, um, they have once again redefined um, how they're um, um, categorizing different acts of sexual assault. And so in a footnote, they say, so this data is no longer comparable with any preceding year, right? So we're, once again, uh, something is in our way that stops us from generating a historically coherent account. And I think this it creates a sort of enforced cultural amnesia as well with the media when we're talking about the fact that every five years is another zero to a new zero tolerance policy as if because we've forgotten that there was one already and there's always been one. But I think to some extent, uh, Samantha is very right when she points out that sometimes we speak as if um, this is, well, in fact, this is what I'm trying to say, that we, we sometimes we speak as if this is the first time that any of this is happening, right? Um, this has been going on for a very long time and we keep forgetting that. So an example I gave was with the unacceptable behavior survey. As I pointed out, that, that was implemented in the late 1990s and then it was followed through until the end of the 2000s. But then when it was re reintroduced as part of the Broderick reforms, um, the press release associated with that was sort of like, this is a new survey that we've come up with, but it was always there. We just forgot about it. So I think that we need to try to create um, a historical coherence and stop with the amnesia. Great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.